Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 1.21-23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. We've been studying the book of Colossians uh, for the last several weeks. Uh, it's a great, great book. Uh, one of my favorites in, uh, in the Bible, uh, to be sure. And uh, we've gone through 20 verses already. And uh, we've learned a lot about the church at Colossae and about how it was started uh, originally by a man named Epaphras who uh, preached the gospel there. And, and uh, there were people there who believed the gospel, and they <clears throat> Epaphras set up a church, and I'm sure appointed some elders, and uh, there you go, we have a church. But then we heard about these false teachers that came in who began to kind of stir things up, as is the case uh, in many churches. Uh, especially as we read about them in the Bible. And uh, they began to preach a slightly skewed version of the gospel, one which was not that which they heard first. And so Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, gives them instruction on how they are to be now, how, how they're to respond to that. And so last week, and we haven't really gotten so much into all that, that's what's going to be coming up in the next uh, uh, several weeks and months. But... Last week we heard about Christ and about how he is our creator, the creator of not only us, but the world, the whole universe, and how everything that whether we can see or can't see, um, he is the one who uh, created it, was created by him, the the Bible tells us, and through him. uh, There was nothing, John tells us, that was made, that was not made by Christ. And so... uh, Last week, we really, uh, those verses that Sam went through uh, really kind of clarified to us the deity of Jesus Christ and, and his preeminence in all things. These verses that we heard read this morning, verses 21 to 23, um, I love these verses. Um, I, I loved spending time these last few weeks meditating on these verses and really trying to just... Um, soak in them and, and, and allow God to try to just show me what it is that, that, that I need to speak about on these verses. And for me, they really clarify a certain aspect of the gospel so clearly and, and uh, the, the whole idea of reconciliation. And uh, I love the gospel. I do. As a pastor, as a Christian, I mean, it's the gospel. Paul says the gospel is that which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And that's why Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. And I hope this morning that none of us would be ever ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is, is God's power. It's gospel that um, teaches us or through the gospel, that sinners are saved and given new life in Christ. It's the gospel that teaches us, gives us the power to live our lives in a way 
that is acceptable and pleasing to God. It's the gospel that picks us up when we fall down, when we sin. It's the gospel that gives us the assurance that our sins are completely forgiven and that we are accepted by God. Not because of any good that can be found in us, but because of the goodness that's in Jesus. And it's the gospel that gives us strength to persevere in our faith until the very end. Now, today's passage is Paul's reminder to the Colossian believers of who they once were and who they have become. It's a good time for us to join with the Colossians this morning here at Damascus Road and to reflect ourselves upon these two realities if you are a believer this morning. Who you once were and who you are now. Who you were before you knew Jesus Christ, before He saved you, and who you are having been born again. Now for some of you, this is simply a call to consider who you are now because you never have yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are one of those, I'm really glad you're here this morning because it's my prayer that perhaps even this morning or at some point in the near future, you too will be able to reflect back on two realities in your life, who you once were and who you are now in Christ. Paul says that we were once alienated. And he's talking about an alienation from God. This usage of the word alienation in the original language uh, gives the meaning of complete permanence. Something that... uh, is is a permanent separation. It's a separation that's caused by our own behavior and our own rebellion. Keep in mind that God did nothing to cause this alienation. It all started with our Uncle Adam there in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? And it's been the state of every person born who has born into this world is that we're born with a sinful nature and we're born alienated, and then we, we live on that, that way, because that's the way we are. We're born with a sin nature, and as such, we do not desire to have a relationship with God because He's holy and perfect, and we are not. And we're okay with that. Left in that situation, we wouldn't even pursue God. It's according to our natural inclinations to distance ourselves as much as possible from God. It's kind of a sad state of affairs, if you ask me. Luckily, it doesn't stay that way. There is good news, and that's where the gospel comes in. Paul tells the Colossians that, and he tells us too, that once we were hostile in our minds and that we did evil deeds. This is true for all of us and continues to be true for those who have not experienced the grace of repentance and faith. Our minds are by nature hostile, Paul says, toward God. And it's the God that's revealed to us in the Bible. Paul tells the Romans in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Also, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, 
it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think we all know hostility to God when we see it or when we hear it. For example, I read about, just this last week, an Iranian pastor, a Christian pastor who had been uh, sentenced for execution, sentenced to die because he refused to recant his faith in Christ. In Iran, the government is extremely hostile to Christianity and even to followers of Christ. Just last year, during the six-month period, actually, between 2010 and January 2011, a total of 202 Christians were arrested and imprisoned because of their faith in Christ. As of last January, 33 were still in prison. Now, I did look online this morning to see if there was any updates because he was supposed to die this past Wednesday. So I checked to see if they had, but now the Iranian government is saying that he actually uh, wasn't accused of being a Christian, that he was accused of being a security threat and uh, other, other crimes. That's why he's in prison right now, and that the West is making all this up to make Iran look bad. But if you look back at the record, the article said that, that basically everything that they had ever accused him of up until this point had been because of his preaching Christ, because he had been baptized, because he had baptized others, because he had refused to recant Christ, and because he refused to accept Islam and, and uh, the, that whole faith. <clears throat> so there is real overt hostility in this world, uh, and we can all recognize that when we see it, um, especially uh, in other countries. I'm sure some of you remember Pastor Sudakar, friend of ours, who came to visit us twice from India, pastor of Gospel Bethel Gospel Church or something like that in uh, Hyderabad, India. When he was here last about a year or two ago, he told us stories about how he had been beaten uh, because of his faith in Christ and ended up in the hospital several times. Now, we're blessed to live in a country where we can still proclaim our faith without fear of violence. However, that doesn't mean that hostility toward God does not exist, even in this country. I think that what Paul is getting at here is that that type of hostility that comes to our mind when the God of the Bible doesn't match the God of our own creation. For example, when confronted with the sovereignty of God, for example. Many of us, when we begin to learn God, who God is more closely as we study who he is in the, in the Bible, um, it's a little shocking at first. It can be a little bit upsetting. It's like, I don't know if I can worship this God. I don't know if I can really believe in a God who is like this. But that is because we ourselves are not in line with who, who God is or don't understand exactly who God is. We don't like it because we believe that we have so much more control over our lives than what God does. We want to keep our distance from God. We don't want to submit ourselves to God. 
because our deeds are evil and we want to keep him in the dark. Because the closer we get to God, the more his light shines on our sin, exposing it for what it is, exposing our hearts for what they are, and it makes us real uncomfortable. I think that what Paul is getting at here is that this hostility is present for sure in all of us until we come to the point where Christ brings us new life through, uh, through the gospel. Listen to a quote that I read online from a newspaper columnist who said that a good God who rules the world and answers prayers would be, quote, one mean, petty, obsessive, compulsive bore, who she pictures as saying things like this. I'm going to give leukemia to six babies in Iowa today, taking out 10,000 folks in a Bangladesh in a typhoon, and raising the rate of prostate cancer in Australia 11%. Meanwhile, because they asked me so nicely, I'm dissolving a tumor in the brain of a woman in London, rerouting an 8.3 earthquake away from the Azores, and letting the contestant from Sweden win Miss Universe. Now, that's someone who cannot accept, obviously, who God is. But, of course, there's a lot of misunderstanding and twist put into that. But there's a sense in which that's just, that's just hostile. And I think we've all kind of run into that type of hostility in our lives before. Not everyone is that hostile, but the hostility is still there. And really, we would all be sitting right there in that same place of hostility if it would not have been, if it hadn't have been, for the love of God and his desire to be reconciled to us. This sermon is really about this mystery of reconciliation. Paul says that we have been reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death. By this, he is speaking of Christ's life in his sacrificial death on the cross. In our society, reconciliation, that word is usually used in cases where we talk about um, two uh, parties who are enemies of each other or who are at odds with one another. Oftentimes, the word reconciliation is used when we talk about estranged uh, married couples who are trying to get back together. As a pastor who gets to counsel broken marriages uh, from time to time, I can tell you that it's an incredible joy to see two people who are married to one another who have been struggling in their marriage be reconciled one to another. That is an incredible thing to see. Sometimes that happens. Other times it doesn't. And when it doesn't happen, divorce is inevitable. Paul gives us a little insight into this mystery and the manner in which God reconciles sinful people to himself. If, you, if we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 16, he wrote, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we, or so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now I can't really say it any more clearly than Paul just said it. God has entrusted us to carry forth in this time and in this place the message of reconciliation. So don't think that because you're not a pastor or because you didn't go to Bible school or seminary that you can't be useful to God in advancing his kingdom. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are a new creation. The old you is gone and the new you is here. And God has given you a ministry to help in reconciling the world through himself, to himself, through Jesus Christ. Now, surely none of us have the same platform that someone like Billy Graham has had throughout his life to preach the gospel to the whole world. But each of us has our own unique place in our own lives where we can make an impact. There are several points that I thought of to consider in encouraging you to become a more effective ambassador for Jesus Christ. First, remember that you yourself are powerless to change anyone or to make anyone into a new creation. Secondly, your responsibility is simply to communicate the gospel through your words and through your life. This accompanies your family life, your home life, your work life, your church life, your marriage, and so on. Remember that the power to change comes from God. He's the one who changes hearts. And remember this, too, is that he uses his word to do it. And finally, be sensitive to the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit. Remember to rely on his power and not your own. Paul continues, he says, We've been reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there's a sense in which he's talking about a future event, that this is how we are going to be presented to God. But there's also a sense in which that is our position now as Christians. When we get saved... We are counted as righteous before God, even though we are practically still sinners. Faith in Christ brings justification. Justification is just a simple theological word that just means that you are right with God. Your sins have been paid for, and your standing before God is one where he accepts you and he loves you. Just as if I never sinned is kind of an easy way to to look at that word justified. But justification leads to sanctification, which is a growing in your faith or a growing in Christ-likeness. I like to think of sanctification. We never become without sin in this life. I mean, that's very clear. 
Um, but when we become saved, oftentimes we stop certain things, some, certain sins in our life. They're just like we know it instantly. Uh, but that doesn't mean that once those are gone that we stop recognizing additional sins that are in our lives. Um, and that's the process as it happens is as you grow, as you understand the gospel better, as you understand his word better, you begin to see really how sinful you really are. And those things that you never even considered that were sins in your life, all of a sudden you're, right, you're recognizing that there's some, some serious sin in your life. But God doesn't demand that we be perfect in ourselves because our perfection comes from Jesus. It's important to remember that. <clears throat> Some of the things that come with new birth, because he doesn't just give us faith, but he gives us a new heart. And this new heart um, begins to, well, he gives us the Holy Spirit, who gives us uh, a desire to uh, change uh, all of a sudden, our desire to sin is no longer as strong as it once was. And suddenly, we actually have a desire to begin doing that which is right. Paul writes to the Romans. This is in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, which when I read this this week, I was like reading it for the first time. I just hadn't seen this quite the same way. But now that you have been set free from sin and have been, become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. In other words, when we believe, we receive the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul tells us in Galatians are love, joy, and peace, uh, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says that this fruit actually leads to sanctification. That's amazing. That doesn't mean, though, that it's all done for us. To be sure, our justification is completely and fully done for us by God. We play no part in that. We are spiritually dead, and He makes us alive. Dead men can't respond to anything. But God changes our hearts. He brings new life into our, into our hearts. But our sanctification is a mutual effort. We labor to crucify the deeds and the desires of the flesh, which war against the Spirit. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But we've got to have a good and proper motivation for our sanctification. Any good that we do is not so that God will accept us or love us more. Or any evil that we shun is not just so that we would somehow improve our standing with God. No, He already accepts us because of Jesus. And every good thing we do or every evil thing that we avoid should be out of a response to what Christ did for us and because of our love for Him, and because of our desire to glorify Him with how we live our lives. Now, 13, more than 13 years ago, God graciously 
called myself and my family out of legalism, out of self-righteousness, and I'm still learning what it means for me personally to live the gospel. My father died of ALS five years ago, Lou Gehrig's disease, and he left my mother a widow. A couple of years ago, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And lately, she has been getting more and more forgetful, requiring more and more care. She still lives at home in Longview, about 160 miles south of here. But, and she's probably about 90 to 95% able to take care of herself and you know, mind her own affairs. Of course, she doesn't drive anymore or anything like that. I have a couple of siblings that live close by, within walking distance, who've been able to help her take care of her, you know, uh, making sure she takes her medicine every day and, you know, trips to the doctor, stuff like that. Earlier this week, I was asked if I could go down there. One of us who live up here, one of her siblings that, or kids that live up here, could go down and take her to the doctor in Portland because the ones, my sisters and brother that were down there were, were not able to do it. So. I went down there with Cheryl and our two youngest, and we went down Monday night, stayed the night with her, and brought her to Portland the next day. And it was a joy. It really was a joy for me to be able to spend that time with my mother, who's, quite honestly, I called her the next day to ask her about how she was doing and, and asked her if she remembered where we had went the previous day, and she had already forgotten. That's how this disease affects and is so sad. But the reason I bring this up is because I believe that, you know, as I've been meditating on different verses in the Bible, that we have a responsibility to, to live the gospel. And what does the living the gospel mean um, when it comes to something like this, where you have a mother or father who is needing more care? And I know that, by and large, all of you would, would agree that it, it is whatever you've got to do, whatever it takes to to help them and to be there for them and, and to assist them. And, and I certainly feel the same way. Unfortunately, there's a few of my siblings that don't quite see it the same way as I do. So I've really had to uh, kind of search myself and search the scriptures. And we all agree, of course, our siblings and I, that we want our mother to live at home as long as possible, recognizing that, you know, uh, and we're willing to, uh, to take her into our homes and care for her. Uh, recognizing that someday there may come a day when we're going to have to put her into a care facility or something when it becomes too much for us to be able to, to, uh, to care for her in that way. But I think that's a long way off. So we still have a lot of time where we can do this. Um, but anyway, I was, I, was, I was thinking about this and thinking about how we're called to live a gospel life and a sacrificial life. And when it comes to something like this, you can recognize and see that there is going to be some real sacrifices that we as her children are going to need to make. So in Romans 12:1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, Paul, Paul answers that question. Your whole life should be a sacrifice. You live your life, and that's how you worship your God, is by, by sacrificing your life. He's basically saying your life is no longer your own. 
It belongs to God. Now give it to him. And so then I also read in uh, Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus says, If anyone would um, come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Again, Jesus is the same way as saying, If you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to sacrifice. You've got to pick up your cross. And you've got to deny your own, whatever it is that wants to lead you in a different direction. In John, 1 John chapter 3, 16 to 18, John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's pretty sacrificial, isn't it? Um, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So as if I needed any more conviction about how much I needed to sacrifice, I read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, you see, God doesn't really give us any wiggle room to, to say, I can't, I can't be there for, you know, fill in the blank. You know, uh, when we start our lives as, as families, you know, uh, when we become new parents, we're, we're, we're raising children, and that's sacrifice for sure. Anyone with a family knows the degree of sacrifices we as fathers and mothers have to make on a, on a continual basis when we raise kids the way that God wants us to raise them. But it continues with our parents when they get old, and we get to repay them for what they've done for us and how we, they cared for us while we were little. But it doesn't end with family. Living the gospel compels us to respond to all of life with the same mind that Christ had of sacrifice. But we are all at different places in our walk, so we can't be judgmental of others. And I had to recognize that for myself in visiting with my siblings, the ones that I didn't quite understand where they were coming from. Uh, because Paul says in Romans 12:3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So whatever you find yourself doing in this life as you live out the gospel in your own way, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. For as soon as you think that your sacrifice is making you more acceptable to God and better than those around you, your sweet-smelling sacrifice has just turned into a stench before the, uh, before the Lord. And you have become just like the Pharisee who once prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <coughs> Excuse me. That's one. Therefore, we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, even though we still carry around these bodies of flesh. Yet one day we will be presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach. You see, 
God is so holy, so pure, so glorious that anyone who is stained with sin cannot stand before him. You see, that is why Christ had to die in order to reconcile us to God the Father. Through his sacrificial death on the cross, all of us, all of our sins were paid for. Not one of our sins is too large to have been covered on that day when God died for you and for me. Talk about a mystery, though. How this works, I can't explain it. But I believe it because the Bible so clearly teaches it. And you know what? I've experienced it in my own life. And I'm sure you have too. I have sinned many, many times in my life. But yet I know that my sins are paid for. So therefore, I no longer carry the guilt of my sins. He took my guilt, paid for it on the cross. I don't know what I would do with my guilt if I didn't have Jesus. In fact, I don't know what those who don't have Jesus and believe in him do with the guilt that they certainly have to carry with them. So one of the greatest things about the cross is that it removes our guilt. But even now, when I fail my Lord again, and I do experience guilt, I can go to the cross, and I can confess my sin to him, and he removes my guilt once again. Isn't that great? Paul finally tells the Colossians that this is true if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. An indispensable characteristic of genuine faith is perseverance. There's an old saying I grew up with that said, yesterday's faith won't save you today. In other words, you've got to believe every single day, and there's certain truth to that. There's also a, perhaps a certain kind of a falsehood in that as well. And the falsehood would be that, of course, if you had genuine faith yesterday, your faith will persevere. And so it, it will save you in the same way that, you know, I mean, it's, it's ultimately it was God who saved you in, 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 in through faith. But, but if you have a faith that's not real, a said faith, then certainly your said faith is not going to save you tomorrow. Yesterday's won't save you tomorrow. It won't save you. It wouldn't have saved you yesterday. So... Um, it would probably be better to say something like, yesterday's real faith will persevere through today and through tomorrow. Because the Bible teaches us that our faith is, our salvation is secure. And even though at times our faith may seem to wane a little bit, we might experience seasons of doubt or difficulty or trial, one thing doesn't change is that our salvation is still there. Because, well, there's a lot of promises in Scripture. I could probably spend the next half hour or an hour reading you all the different passages that solidify that, that teaching from the Bible that we have, uh, we have security. We have salvation from the moment we first believe. I'm only going to read you a couple of them. 
One of them is in Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 11, where Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, God gives us when when we believe, he gives us his Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is a seal which guarantees our inheritance, which is what? It's eternal life with God. And then in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, some verses that I'm sure you're familiar with, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point of all this is just as David declares in the Psalms and Jonah declares in his prophecy, salvation belongs to the Lord. Everything about our salvation is from God. He's the one who brings us to faith and he's the one who sustains us and enables us to finish our fight of faith. In fact, he tells the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so you must be thinking by now, why would Paul even question their perseverance if it was all a done deal? That's a legitimate question, but I think there are several reasons for this. First of all, when Paul writes to um, these different churches, he, is, um, he, he always gives them certain warnings about staying uh, and persevering. So that's always a direction that we're given, that we need to persevere in the faith. Um, but I think also that the false teachers were teaching the Colossians a gospel that was different and that which they had first heard. And this false gospel was doing what all false teachings do, and it was drawing people away from true faith in Christ to something counterfeit, something that cannot save. He was, in essence, warning them against a relapse into their former state with all its soul-destroying vices, and against the remedy that they had been given by those who refuse to accept Christ as the complete and all-sufficient Savior. Secondly, Paul is giving us an answer to those of us who maybe we put all our hope, our salvation hope, into an experience that we had. Maybe when we were young and we were at summer camp. Or maybe when um, we responded to an altar call. Or maybe if we were at a Billy Graham crusade once, and we responded to 
his invitation to come down to the floor and, and receive Jesus Christ. Or maybe <clears throat> once upon a time we said the sinner's prayer because someone had introduced us to Jesus. And maybe even our faith kind of seemed to spark and we seemed to have faith for maybe a month or, or a year or five or ten years. And then for whatever reason, you just quit and went back to your old way of life. Or maybe it's not you, but maybe you know someone like this who, who, who did that. Is it because the, God is you know, uh, slack concerning his promise that he will help you finish? Or are there cases sometimes when people profess faith but it's not a real faith. I think, I think that's true. I think sometimes um, we might see, see it in, with friends of ours or maybe you've experienced it yourself where uh, you've, you've seemed to have a real genuine faith, but then it like disappears. But real faith, we know, will persevere because God promises that. One of the things is because it's not just faith that God gives us when he saves us. He gives us a new heart and begins to recreate us from the inside out so that anyone who knew you before can testify that you are not the same person as before. There are things about you that are bound to change when you become a Christian. But even when life gets tough, even when we have to endure trial, real faith, true faith, perseveres. Those who are truly born again don't give up when life gets hard. Doesn't mean you don't struggle, doesn't mean you don't have a hard time. True faith endures. True faith continues to see Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient, perfect, preeminent creator of the universe, savior of the world. False teachers are still out there. I don't know if you've ever done it. Maybe you don't know that there are a lot of false teachers out there. I don't think it was just something that happened during Paul's time. But if you were to just tune in to TBN on TV for about an hour, it doesn't matter what time of day or night, and you will be barraged, I guarantee it, by false teaching, twisting of scripture, presentation of a gospel that's different than what Paul preached. Mostly what you'll hear is, is uh, word faith teaching or, or prosperity teaching where they say that God wants you to prosper and that's his absolute desire for you to be rich in this life and that if you're not rich or you're struggling or you're not healthy, it could be because of a lack of faith in your life and that you need to sow a seed by giving them money and that God will bless you and it will multiply many fold. You see, there's serious error there. There's serious false teaching. What does it do? It draws people away from Christ, ultimately. It's dangerous. And we need to be able to be on guard against that. Because even though if we have salvation and God has given us faith, 
we can't be led away finally and fully just as we can't fall finally and fully away from his grace. Because it's God who gave it to us. He's the one who sustains us. But we need to know the truth. We need to know the truth and be so familiar with it so that when we see false teaching, we'll know it instantly. In in conclusion, consider your position in Christ today. Even though you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil things, God has now reconciled you through His Son so that you can be presented to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. What an amazing reality. Don't hide such incredible news from the world by covering your faith under a basket. Allow the brilliance of the light of Christ shine in the darkness in the world around you.